Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verb. This is season three. Season three of The Actor's Mind, a podcast. You got it, you got it. <laughs> By Kateri McCrae and Anne Kenna. <laughs> Welcome to season three of The Actor's Mind. <laughs> Today's episode is on actors' mental health and emotional intelligence. Yes. I'm Kateri McRae. I'm Ann Penner. And we were really excited to do some myth-busting today, actually, um, and talk about some of the things that we frequently hear a lot of times from people who are not involved in acting in the theater, but even from within the theater community, I think sometimes, as with all kinds of like stereotypes and generalizations, I think even the people who are affected by them, um, who might not feel that they are personally true, will yeah. sometimes are sometimes guilty of making those generalizations about other people or about the industry in general. Totally agree. So, yeah, we started off actually by like tossing this question to some other people. Yeah, so on Facebook, I asked the question, uh, I said, hey, we're preparing this episode on mental actors, mental health. Uh, what ideas do you want to talk about? What myths do you want to bust? Um, and a lot of people came up with the very valuable <laughs> point that just being an actor, the profession, the act of uh, doing so much emotional and time prep to prepare for auditions and being vulnerable in that way and uh, you know, giving yourself a lot of adrenaline and getting so physically and emotionally committed to the work and then often not getting it, not because you're bad, you're just not a good fit, that that roller coaster is heroic. Um, we will, that's not, though that's not the point of that, though that's not the focus of our whole uh, episode, we'll circle back to it at the end. And I think what we do end up talking about uh, today will still be helpful in that regard. Yeah. And I think it's, the other thing that I think we wanted to focus on is maybe aspects of acting that are really unique to acting, because even yeah. though the high rates of rejection are really um, common, it's not entirely unique to acting, right? The same might be true of musicians or modeling or honestly, even <laughs> academia. What we're focusing on, at least from my perspective, is is how actors can build and develop and maintain healthy, mentally healthy relationships to characters. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, actors' mental state and uh, just as self, and then also that their relationship to character and how to keep that um, feeling good. Yeah. And from my point of view, we're always talking about the different psychological processes that are going on in acting training. And for me, this is like a hint at some of the maybe more distal downstream consequences of engaging in acting training. So like there's the, there's the, in the moment, like, what are you actually, what skills are you actually using in an acting class in a rehearsal? Yeah. But then also like, what might be, what is our best guess as to what the cumulative effect of doing that over and over again is? Yes. So that's one of the first times that we've kind of zoomed out in that way. Love it. Let's bust some myths. Let's bust some myths. So we think there are two central myths. There are probably many, many myths um, about actors and their psychological states um, and their psychological health. But the two main ones we're going to focus on are, number one, that there's some sort of need to be emotionally unstable, emotionally unhealthy, um, to have mental illness in order to be a good actor. 
And this myth actually isn't uh, limited to actors. So the the broader form of this myth is the myth of mental illness and creativity more generally, that you need to be somehow unwell in order to reach the height of uh, a height of creativity. Another variation on this myth is that um, people who are less emotionally healthy, less mentally healthy, more emotionally unstable are drawn to acting to begin with. So there's a self-selecting process by which the people who are um, the sort of least controlled and wildest are drawn into doing acting um, either for a living or for a hobby or whatever. Yeah. And our second myth is that acting itself makes you emotionally unstable, that deregulates you, that the practice of playing a character and maybe especially playing a a really difficult character, maybe a violent character, a a malicious character, a cruel character, uh, uh, or and or playing it over a very long period of time kind of pushes you off balance, sort of takes away your own sense of self, ego, and, and that one can be trapped by the character. Uh, there's some nuance to that one, uh, but I mostly it's a myth. So we're focused on mental health, and I think it warrants just a couple of minutes of discussion on sort of what most people conceive the opposite of mental health to be. So within sort of scientifically supported psychological circles, most people consider the sort of realm of studying psychological disturbance, impairment, difficulty to be in the domain of clinical psychological disorders. So clinical psychology is the sort of scientific branch of trying to figure out the best categorization structure for the different ways that people's psychological health might be disturbed. For a long time, this is uh, has been and still is sometimes referred to as abnormal psychology because there is a real increasing attention to be paid uh, for the fact that there is, if you look at the statistics, right, if you look at lifetime prevalence of these diagnosable disorders, there are often more people who meet criteria for some disorder at some point in their lifetime than don't. So really, that class should be called normal psychology. And then yeah. the people who never reach criteria for anything, those would be the abnormal psychology people. So um, it, it, it's a little bit tricky of a, of a sort of space to manage. But historically, psychological disorders have been modeled after medical disorders. Right. So there's this idea that there is sort of like within a normal range of functioning and then there is a within a range of functioning that is problematic or that causes impairment. So this causes a couple of different things. One is, as I was saying before, it it causes problematically this deficit model of clinical disorders. Right. It's that you have this disorder and therefore there's this attitude that there is something wrong with you, that you need to get back to normal, whatever that is. And that can be really problematic in terms of spreading stigma, in terms of discouraging people from getting treatment, uh, in terms of labeling particular groups that might not need to be labeled that way. It also results in a focus on function. So currently in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that governs all of these um, diagnoses, and diagnoses can be very, very helpful for getting people into treatment, right? Giving people a medical code to charge to their insurance is a really important piece of diagnosis, even though there's some other things that are less um, great about it. But one of the key features of any diagnosis you get is, is it causing some sort of functional impairment in your life, right? So if you're diagnosed with major depressive disorder, for example, 
Um, there's not just the checklist of the different things that could qualify you for the disorder in terms of disturbed sleep, disturbed eating habits, um, feelings of worthlessness, you know, um, sad and depressed mood for an extended period of time, loss of interest or pleasure in things. These are all parts of the way that you diagnose major depressive disorder, but you all, it also has to be impacting your life in a negative way. Yeah. So, and that impact can be really broad, right? It can be impacting your own life. It could be impacting your work, impacting your relationships, um, your relationship with your family. Um, so it's really hard to think of a, a pattern of behavior that is diagnosable because this literally can't be, you can't come up with a pattern of behavior that just because it's different is diagnosable. It has to be causing some sort of inability to hold down a job, you know, causing concern amongst loved ones, you know, causing harm or, you know, in, in society. So these, measures of functional impairment are still relative, are still societally influenced, culturally influenced. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that just being different <laughs> isn't enough uh, to, uh, to to qualify you for, for one of these disorders. Just being too emotional... <laughs> Right. Right. Is not a disorder in and of itself. And certainly the amount of emotional expression that people feel comfortable in their everyday life, right. a lot of that depends on their context, right? Like within certain cultural contexts, even microcultural contexts within the United States, some groups are more permissive of openly expressive emotions and some groups are not. I hope nobody is taking mental illness to just mean like, Oh, people overflowing with emotion. That is not inherently bad. That is not inherently pathological. That is not inherently diagnosable. I love that. Yeah. I was just wanting to support that and say that it's one thing that I love about actors is that they tend to be relatively emotionally expressive and that I think I have no scientific evidence for this. That's okay. <laughs> You're not the scientist. I'm not the scientist, <laughs> but I feel like, um, and I'm sure we've we've talked about this in previous episodes, but I really admire how expressive children are, and I think at least Americans, as we grow up, we tend to somehow learn to not express ourselves as as fully as we are capable of. Uh, and so, what I I sometimes think that when I when people judge actors and say that they're too emotional, that it's actually they're just right. They're plenty like they have some nice. Uh, level of emotion. It's just the rest of us are so used to not expressing ourselves enough. Just to sort of cut the legs out of this myth before moving on, um, the evidence around creativity and uh, mental illness or psychopathology in general um, is is pretty uh, messy. Uh, th this 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 sort of hypothesis, right, that create that uh, mental illness makes people more creative has been around for a really long time, and people have measured creativity in lots of different ways. So see our creativity episode for yeah. how, how creativity is measured and some of the potential problems with that. Um, but. In recent summaries of the kind of historical research on this, most of the scholars that I could find came to the conclusion that A, it's messy, so it's a little hard to tell, but B, there isn't a lot of evidence for a connection between mood disorders, so uh -huh. um, emotion, like really specifically emotionally related disorders and creativity. There might be very, very weak but significant evidence for 
a relationship between creativity and disorders like um, schizotypal personality disorder, which is a, a sort of milder, more stable uh, sub-characteristics of, uh, associated with schizophrenia, so a little bit of less severe psychotic features, and um, bipolar disorder, which also sometimes has some psychotic features. So there might be something a little bit about occasionally um, experiencing a break from reality, um, oh. That is related to creativity, but in terms of relationship between anxiety disorders, major depressive disorder, um, those sorts of um, those sorts of, of mood related disorders, there doesn't seem to be strong, um, at least overwhelming evidence from this very very messy literature that those two things are inherently related. So. To counteract some of the frequent focus on this sort of deficit model of um, clinical disorders, I thought it would be more interesting and generative to talk about the emotional health sort of side of things, right? Like what does particularly well-functioning emotional processing sort of look like? So if there's an entire research uh, related field on what a lot of people call emotional intelligence, and uh, there are a lot of different ways to sort of um, define emotional intelligence and high functioning sort of emotional ability. Um, but one of the most useful ways that I have come to think about emotional intelligence um, is that it is the combination of two different factors. The two factors are um, awareness of emotions and regulation of emotions. And emotional intelligence often looks to measure these both in oneself awareness and self-regulation, as well as another person. So awareness of other people's emotions and potentially even regulation of other people's emotions. We have a little like two by two quadrant that creates four boxes that we'll put on the website for if anyone wants to refer to this if we start talking in quadrants. Yeah, and Kateri is going to lead this conversation, and then I'm going to follow up with um, ties to acting, just as actor is self, and then the other is the other is character. Yeah. So the first quadrant is self-awareness. So a lot of people refer to this as um, emotional awareness, right? Being aware of when you are having an emotion. Um, and uh, different researchers might operationalize emotional awareness in a few different ways. There are several different scales that you can use. Um, again, it's really hard because there is no gold standard objective. Like, I know this person is feeling this emotion right now. Like, you can gather right. uh, objective information. But um, so some people sort of look at the correspondence between objectively available cues and self-reported awareness. But again, there could be really good reasons that those are disconnected. Another piece that a lot of people consider part of self-awareness is your ability to detect changes in your body, right? Since emotions are incredibly embodied. Um, so uh, there are some tasks like uh, how sensitive people are to noticing their own heart rate mm. um, or whether or not they're able to, to, to detect um, changes uh, that are associated with emotions in their body. Another thing that you can um, use as a proxy for sort of self-awareness of emotion um, is whether people are good at finding a linguistic label for their emotions, right? Whether or not they have a nuanced understanding of um, the, the difference between two emotions that might seem really similar, like um, envy and jealousy or shame and guilt. 
Um, but again, then you have to have an objectively right answer <laughs> to like, what are the differences between those? And then are you scoring people based on how much they're agreeing with the rest of uh, individuals? Some people might have a very clear idea on what the difference between those two things is for them. Yeah. But if that doesn't line up with sort of society's definition. So it's really tricky to measure. And the reason this is so important for actors is the best training actually starts with you becoming aware of your own state of being and your own lived experience. And then we translate that to character. Character. So just to reiterate how valuable Uta Hagen's book is, Respect for Acting, is the first third to half of that book is actually work that you do on yourself in terms of how you self-identify, various substitutions you can use in your life, and all these different hooks into you understanding and articulating your state of being, as Katira has already said, cognitively, what am I thinking about, uh, physical sensation, how does my body feel right now, uh, emotion, being able to label, being able to articulate it with words, uh, using the five senses to ground you and root you in your current state of being so yeah. that you are not disembodied. You are not out of your head. You are not out of your body. You are actually very present uh, with kind of who you are and where you're at at any given moment. This is going to set you up for success when you do the same work for character. Yeah. This is where some people might experience a sort of an aha moment when they hear about the appraisal theory of emotions is that part of understanding your own emotions is understanding your emotional triggers, understanding what uh -huh. causes emotions. And in general, people are actually fairly bad at understanding the real source of their emotion. There's a lot of misattribution of your emotion to other things going totally. on. Totally. <laughs> I do that every day. <laughs> I want to make sure our listeners can picture that this first part of the quadrant is, or the first quadrant is in the upper left-hand corner. Sure. Right? Yeah. And we'll have a picture on our website. Totally. So the next quadrant, um, if you move down from there, is self-regulation. Um, so this is what I study, is emotion regulation in particular. And one of the things it's important to start off with is that regulating your emotions isn't synonymous with squashing them right? So a lot of people, when they hear the word regulated, they think, you know, even keeled, no reactivity, everything is low, right? That you're really well regulated if you never react to anything emotionally, which is not really the goal of emotion regulation. So regulation in biological systems and in broader, like, you know, physical systems, regulation refers to there being avenues for feedback and control in order to keep the level of something within a predefined uh, bounds or within predefined goals. So sometimes that means turning the level of something up or down. So if you think about, it's not a very perfect analogy, but if you think about the thermostat regulating the heat in your house, the goal of your thermostat is not to, to keep your heat down. It's not to keep the temperature in your house down. You say this is an acceptable range and when it's above, it brings it back in and when it's below, it brings it back in. And it's the same with emotions, except mm. for that our our goal, our range is dynamic. It changes in context, right? So we might be in a particular room and say, this is my goal for how I want to feel, or this is the range that's acceptable to feel. Or we might have a scene, you know, ag again, in an acting context. And emotion regulations means uh, being able to, to keep that emotion within those ideal bounds. So a big part of the myth that we were talking about hints at the fact that actors are dysregulated, right? Yeah. They can't, they don't have any control. Yeah. They can't keep their emotions within bounds. Um, and 
both Anne and I find this really funny, actually. (laughs) Because, like, any actor that we might know who is, like, largely dysregulated would probably be a horrific actor. They would just struggle a lot. There would just be a lot of obstacle uh, getting, getting the work uh, done. This reminds me, I have a lot, I have a few things to say about self-regulation. Yeah. For some reason, as I was prepping my mom, not for some reason, I think about my mom all the time. My mother came up because I remember in my twenties really struggling with my secondary response to my emotions. And and part of what I think regulation is, or maybe it belongs in self-awareness, is that if I feel a thing strongly, if I feel really sad, and it usually are the negative ones, mm-hmm. or I feel really angry, I then have a meta response to it, which often is... Um, I don't say dysfunctional, but it's aggravated, it's agitated that I feel that way. Yeah. And I remember my mother, and a big part of this episode is it's really important to have people in your life who love you, and you love them, and you trust them. So we're saying, don't worry about your response, just feel what you feel. And I think what I try and practice, and as I mature, I've succeeded at, and it helps with my acting, is to be more comfortable yeah. in, let's say, uncomfortable. And I'm thinking about this cons- uh, set of concentric circles that uh, my friend Julie Rada mentioned, which is you if you have three concentric circles, you have the one in the middle, the smallest one, which is your comfort zone, Sure. where you just, whatever that is for you, you just are like, yeah, I'm good. And then I you, might call that like your habit zone too. Habit. Right? Oh, like I love your, the word yeah. habit. Yeah. Your everyday habit zone. Then there's the middle zone, which I want to encourage people slash actors to also exist in, which is like slightly uncomfortable. You don't feel it as often. It's a little more heightened. Um, it's it's maybe emotions that you're not always content inside of. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I struggle a lot with sadness when I feel sad, but anger I'm kind of okay with. <laughs> and happiness I'm happy to just feel to its extreme. Um, that that's a thing that as if we can practice being okay inside of that larger middle circle, that's yeah. great. And then of course there's a bigger, there's a final circle, which is kind of danger zone. I'm ext- like, I feel like I am in danger and that's a place that maybe you're not ready or never will be ready, nor should be ready to hang yeah. out in. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, do, what defines those bounds, what defines our goals or what we think is acceptable to have as an emotion. Again, like I said, that changes by context. And so like what you were saying, a few minutes ago about really liking like theater people and theater yes. environments is like the the bounds of acceptable expression yeah. is bigger and the bounds can actually be different for different aspects of your emotional response, right? So there could be different cultural rules about what it's acceptable to feel versus what it's acceptable to express. Yeah. Um or what it's acceptable to ask for help with even. So I, you know, those those things do sort of change dynamically and th- people do have secondary emotional responses, right? So again, if you, if you go back to appraisal theory, emotions happen when you appraise what is currently going on as being co- consistent or inconsistent with your goals. Yeah. So if you didn't even realize it, but if you had a goal hmm. to keep your sadness above a certain level yeah. and then your sadness dips down, yeah. then you have a reaction to your sadness going... Alert, alert, I'm outside my goal. <gasps> yeah. And so and so sometimes that's a key. Sometimes you can use that signal, that alert, alert, to say, I'm going to change my sadness. Yeah. And sometimes you change your goal. Sometimes you say, I don't need to keep my sadness above yeah. this level because the context I'm in, I just lost a loved one. It's okay for me to right. go below my previously set sadness boundary. And the way I interpret this all similarly is this idea of identity, that we often have a habitual use the word habit, habitual kind of cliche sense of identity, I don't think mine involves sadness. 
So I have this warring thing where it's like, Anne, the cliche Anne is not sad, right? Yeah. And yet Anne is like, wants to embrace all of her emotions. So when I feel sad, I have this mixed, this discomfort of like, well, this doesn't work for the habitual Anne, right? And so I, I want to tie this a little um, briefly to this idea, one definition of mental health that I heard is the ability to move fluidly between various roles. So that if we gain comfort as self, as our own self, moving from this type version of ourselves to this version to this version, that's going to actually set us up for success when we begin to build character. Because then we will have agency in how we build character. The character will not be able to hold on to us. Definitely. And, you know, I think different people hold on to a maybe stereotyped, like, version of themselves as an ideal for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, I, th- I feel like when I was in college, I felt a great desire for internal consistency. Like, I needed to be a consistent person all the time. There's some times where maybe that is true. And maybe if I had been incredibly inconsistent, that might be a goal to increase my consistency. But like consistency in and of itself isn't necessarily a virtue. And especially when you're like in your early twenties, like what? So like, it was very freeing for me to hear from people. Like you don't need to be the same as you were yesterday. You don't have to have this follow the same rules. You don't need to be consistent with your high school's you know, vision of what you would be like in college or anything like that. And that was like incredibly freeing for me. Let me ask you a question. Yes, Do you have any rituals you're willing to share uh, about how you move from one role or Kateri identity to another? Um, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind was just clothing. Yeah. That I, I definitely, if I am going to be having a meeting with, you know, the associate provost and like, you know, important administrators, I will definitely put on my, uh, my, my more professional looking, you know, clothes. So a lot of it is, is outer appearance. Yeah. That's part of it. I was just, as I was thinking that I think I armor and de-armor myself, Mm. like that they, I shift my public and private persona so that I kind of let it all hang out like there's very little armor when I'm home with my family or with my mom. Um, but if I'm going into a scenario where I don't know people or maybe they're higher status yeah. or maybe I f- have a bone to pick with them, I feel frustrated. I might, I don't know if armor's the right phrase, yeah. but I'm going to kind of shift the role that I play. There's this guy, Cal Newport, um, who who talks about, he, he has a bunch of books. He talks about, he has a book called Digital Minimalism. And he, at the end of his day, he, when he shuts everything down, he has some kind of vocal text thing that he says. Oh, like, like, I'm going to get like operating system off. And he says it every day. And it's huh. his way of shutting down work, Cal, yeah. and going home. A big part of my goal identity, like my my stereotyped cliche, like what I want to be is someone who is multifaceted and someone mm-hmm. who has strengths in lots of different areas. Mm-hmm. So I don't allow myself to cruise in one role for very long because it's really important to me to demonstrate that I have other sides of me too. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we sometimes decomplexify. That's not a word. Sure. We simplify a character. That's a better word. <laughs> we simplify, decomplexify. <laughs> we simplify character. I was just having a conversation with two English professors about Lady Macbeth because I'm obsessed with her. And uh, this professor, Scott Howard, just kept saying she and the play are so complex. Like, it, be careful about making, being prescriptive and being mm. conclusive about who she is. And I think we can take that back to us sure. and sort of say, like you said, you're 
you're multifaceted, that we should embrace that we are as complex as we are. We should embrace um, as opposites as we are. Uh, One more example from a play. There's a beautiful one-woman play called Grounded, written by uh, George Brandt, and the the woman is a really badass Air Force pilot. And she gets grounded because she gets pregnant. And so she becomes a remote pilot where she's she's piloting drones in Afghanistan, but she's mm-hmm. in Nevada. And so rather than coming home from the war annually, she does it every day. And so she oh. spends 12 hours being an Air Force pilot and sometimes killing, quote unquote, bad guys. And then every day she drives home and she sees her husband and her young daughter. She really, really struggles with that sure. transition. And even though she's eager to get home, to be the mom and to be the partner, she sometimes has to circle the block And she has these sort of rituals as she drives home because she can't shift out of like the brain Mm -hmm. space from one to the other Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, The final thing I want to say about regulation is, is it's, we've talked a lot about the context. I also think it's relation, it's relational, depending on how well you know the person. You know, I had a a friend who expressed a lot of anger, not at me, to me, but he wasn't upset with me. He was angry about other things. Yeah. And he later apologized and I was fine. It was a big expression of emotion, but because I trusted him and it wasn't at me and I... It means a lot to feel in relationship to yeah. him. I was like, it's okay. If if I didn't know you as well, or if somehow the anger you felt about that was put onto me, that would not be okay. Right. So that the size of it, again, is also probably based on the person who is receiving it or you're giving Absolutely. it to. Absolutely. So again, to sort of wrap up with, with, with kind of putting this myth to bed, I think when it comes to actors being regulated, um, I think, you know, both Anne and I are really struck by the number of anecdotal stories from especially professional actors, like actors working in New York, like, you know, eight shows a week or more, um, who, whose lives are actually incredibly regulated, right? So they're like, there's a stereotype of these like, you know, creative types of these wild parties and like out and like drinking all night and like being incredibly unstable and malleable and immature and irresponsible almost. (sighs) And like, you cannot be a professional actor and do that, right? So especially if you think about the like technical demands of a role that people have. Yeah. Many actors in New York, for example, when they're on Broadway, have like very little fun during (laughs) their run on Broadway, aside from doing the show, which is their dream. And I don't mean to say that it's like unsatisfying, but you know, if you're doing a demanding vocal role in a musical, there's like many interviews with Ben Platt when he was playing Evan Hansen and Dear Evan Hansen about his sort of physical rituals and how he would receive some guests in like the green room after the show, but then he didn't do any of the autograph lines afterwards because he had to save his voice. He had to go home. Um, You know, he, he talks about like waking up every morning and like the first thing he does is like vocalize. He's like, Hmm, Hmm," to like test out his own like voice to see whether he's getting sick. Is he not? Is he phlegmy? He's looking at the color of his snot. Like it's really boring (laughs) Um, and incredibly consuming. And just the amount of focus and regulation and like making responsible choices that is involved is like pretty high. Yeah. And that the work itself is sort of, um, there's a lot of subconscious associative liminal, like, how am I going to get from point A to point B? How am I going to attach myself to character? It's not all obvious. It's not all intellectual. And it takes time. And so to counteract that, you have to show up on time. You have to regulate the work you do. You need the ritual of how you begin the work and how you end the work, whether that's work you do by yourself or in rehearsal. You, you can't... Um, 
you have to you have to back up the timeline to give yourself enough time to do the preparation for the audition or the the actual rehearsal. Yeah. And just to touch like really briefly too, I think if you think about lest you think that uh overly right like maybe hyper regulated people make good actors like that's also not true so really what we're looking for is like not too much like emotional like malleability not too little not like that a robot level of responding to thing but this sort of like goldilocks baby bear you know like not too hot not not too cold not too hard not too soft sort of sweet spot where you feel you have facility with your emotions. You yeah. have expertise with your emotions. Um, you can dial them, that, them up and down to respond to context. Um, but you're not hyper-regulated, nor are you dysregulated. For me, personally, the tie-in for me as the you know the actor who goes out in an audition is to for you to have the facility to to move with malleability into that role and out of that role and to not let that and role, I don't mean character. I mean the like the Anne who's going to go audition. And for me to determine to have the agency and the power to decide, I'm going to give this audition four hours of my time or 30 minutes of my time, this much prep, this much time to get to the audition, um, and to and to to work compassionately with myself in that time period, and then to um, and then to be able to move out of it. I mean, again, I think that when you think about one of these myths that like having intense emotional experiences make you makes you a better actor if you think about the process of teaching someone how to use substitution it's true that a lot of plays are incredible in deal with incredibly heightened situations incredibly intense emotions and so if you have had personal experiences that that veer toward more intense, that gives you a little bit more fodder. But Anne and I push back really hard in our substitution exercise against this idea that like you must have the corresponding experience no, in right. your own lived experience in order to use that as substitution. Right. But again, like there's a sweet spot, right? Like having some variability, having some deep, intense emotional experiences to pull from. Almost every actor I know, if they reach a new height in their personal life in terms of experience, in terms of like maybe losing a parent Mm. or maybe experiencing some other sort of tragedy or trauma, Mm -hmm. there is this a little bit of a sense of like, I have more to pull from now. I have a deeper... Definitely. Well. Well. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You to in order to use that in an acting sense, you still have to have a boundary around it. You yep. still have to be an expert regulator of it because you can't just hit rewind and go relive that moment and then do the scene. Like that's that's not great. yeah. You have to be the agent, <laughs> right? You yeah. you control your relationship to that event. It does not control you. And I'm going to circle back to that in terms of character. You control your relationship to the character. The character. Um, does not control you or you decide how much it controls you. Um, And I think that's part of any good acting class or rehearsal process is you sometimes push against that boundary. Like the way you find your own emotional boundaries is by hitting them and going, yeah, that was it. That was too far. And so a lot of times people use things from their own personal life that they're not ready to use yet. Oh, yeah, sure. They attempt to use them. And then either the actor or the director will be like, not that. Right. Let's... You know, and you safely take care of that person in that moment and all of that. But then you say, let's, let's, yeah. next time we do this, let's, and let's the actor do can else. feel it, can feel it yeah. physically, can feel it, can feel that that was too big 
for them, right. maybe not for someone else, or too small. I mean, I've had the experience of the paralysis of not being able to work inside of a thing because yeah. it was too big of a deal. Um, and, and one thing we've talked about, again, with substitu- substitution is a patchwork. I think you talked about... Um, Ben Platt, again, sort of saying it's not that he was Evan Hansen when he was in high school or that he had a one-to-one model like, oh, my friend Keith was just like Evan Hansen, that he's putting together a patchwork of various, a composite of 10 or more people to create Evan, to help him create Evan Hansen. And to call back again to substitution, what what our guest Gareth at that point said so beautifully, I think, is that you are beginning with these real-life experiences, but they jump you into the imaginative world of the character. And, And by jumping in you into the imaginative world, you actually begin to attach emotionally to the imaginative world. So the other thing I often think about when you think about this balance, right, that the goal of regulation isn't to completely diminish or completely enhance your emotional experience or expression is if acting were so bad for you, why is there drama therapy? <laughs> like, why is this a therapeutic technique if the process of going through and representing someone else's experience is inherently sort of um, unhealthy? And so I personally don't know a ton about drama therapy, but I'm really curious about it. So I actually got a book and was reading just a little bit about it. And, you know, a lot of the goals of drama therapy, there are lots of different ways to do drama therapy. And the chapter I was reading was about this one sort of like five-step model where the goal is to get people out of their habitual self, out of this smallest circle, and, and encourage them to be free um, to explore other aspects of themselves, to play roles that they don't see themselves in, um, you know, to give them a sense of freedom. And then to use that like freedom and like release from who they feel like they are habitually to revisit aspects of their own life. So you transition from just like overall play and like improv games to doing scene work so that you have some basic acting abilities to like work through scenes. But then you do scenes from your life. Either past scenes or current scenes. You play out scenarios that are currently causing you distress. Yeah. And you use the tools along with a very skilled therapist who a lot of times these are done in group settings and the therapist is directing the scene like a director would. It allows you to have insight. It'll like playing either yourself or oftentimes you're playing someone else. Someone there's, there's another member of the group playing you and you're playing someone else. It gives you a different perspective on your life and it leads to insight. It leads to these aha moments. And I didn't realize I was approaching things like this. I didn't realize this person always made me feel that way. Um, And then you can, you can stage some sort of resolution or next step or, you know, you, you bring it back into your own, the realm of your own control, you know, through these sort of scenes and it's community building too. Do you sometimes play different versions of yourself? Like, could there be multiple people playing you like this, this courageous version of yourself or this frightened version of yourself? I mean, you could have, you could have a scene where you're playing yourself at different ages or you could have two different sides of yourself or two different roles you play. You could have you could have Mother Kateri, you know, having yeah. a conversation with Professor Kateri yeah. about, you know, what to do so when cool. you go on vacation with your family, but you have this grant deadline or whatever. Not that, that that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so the idea is that that a lot of the same benefits of theater more generally can be applied for people who have really specific goals of like wanting to work through something or overcome something or or try to conquer a past trauma or something like that. Thank you. So 
jumping over to the other side of the quadrant, if you think about back to awareness, so we're up at the top now, um, but we're not thinking about awareness of our own emotions. We're thinking about awareness of others' emotions. So within the psychology literature, a lot of times measuring people's ability to uh, recognize other people's emotions come from tasks where you're looking at facial expressions of other people. Sometimes they're static. There are a few different tasks that um, measure recognition of other people's emotions in terms of videos that are unfolding over time. And just being able to say, like, what is this person feeling right now? Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, this ability to um, correctly identify, or I guess I should say to match the consensus of everyone else in the world who's looked at these emotional faces, <laughs> um, that's something that there actually are a few um, particular disorders that there are accuracy impairments in. So autism spectrum disorders, for example, are frequently associated with um, a lesser um, sort of naturalistic accuracy in recognizing emotions. Interestingly, there are, there are a few hacks that you can instruct individuals. Like, for example, to uh, one of the first ones that was discovered is that if you instruct them to attend to the eye region of the face, their accuracy improves quite a bit. Um, so that it might not be a an inability to tell what's happening, but an avoidance of the eye region of the face naturally, that if you then correct. Uh, sometimes... Um, there's also a resistance to following that instruction. So a lot, some people um, with autism spectrum disorders indicate that it's very intense to maintain eye contact with someone. I have had this experience. I consider myself a relatively socially adept person, but when I am feeling subpar, and it might just be tiredness or emotionally drained, I make less eye contact with mm. people, and I don't know why. If it's that I feel crappy, so I don't want them to see my eyes, like mm. I don't want them to see into my soul... Uh, do you feel like w when you look into their eyes, you can tell more fully yeah. what's going on with them and that, and you don't have like the energy to yes, like, connect with them? Yes, I think that them? might be it. Yeah. I've always seen it as a, like a shame thing, which like when I'm feeling not crappy about myself, but maybe tired, tired. like drained, like yeah. I don't have battery, I don't have ba uh, bandwidth Yeah, that by looking at them, I then have to take them in, yeah. which is exactly what this part of the quadrant, this quadrant is totally. that I don't always have the yeah. energy. I'm like, I'm just looking out for me you right now. It. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love you, but I can't look at you in the yeah. eyes right now. No, that's the thing. I'm, I, I think that's totally um, consistent. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, there are a few other ways of measuring this. You know, there's a, there's also measures of measuring emotional, um, recognition in terms of prosody. What's prosody? Um, like <gasps> detecting the affective musicality of someone's speech, not the words oh, they're using. Oh, yeah. But like you can, you know, you can uh, alter um, a, a, a conversation and take out the semantic meaning of the words. You can garble the semantic meaning mm -hmm. of the words. And most people can still detect um, the emotional tone of mm -hmm. that. Or you can do it. It's actually even easier. You can do it in another language, <laughs> right? So if we are listening to a conversation that people are having the language that we are not fluent in, yeah. we can usually tell whether that's an angry conversation or a loving conversation conversation yeah. or a lighthearted conversation. For me, other equals the character. So we're beginning to mm. sort of jump from the work that you would do on yourself and jumping into your relationship to character. Sure. And also to a lesser extent, at least today, um, it also has to do with the other, per the other, your co-actor or your scene partner, or the other characters uh, on stage. There are a bunch of different ways to take in the emotional life, cognitive, physical life of your character. Um, I actually think I am not great 
at speedy script analysis. I, when I read a play, I think I miss a lot of things. I think, yeah, I think some people are, a lot of people are just better at it than I am. I don't know why. I think I probably just move through it too quickly. Um, but once we have a visceral attachment to it, once I'm doing a read through and I can hear my voice and experience the character through my voice, and then definitely when I'm starting to move as character, I think those are my strengths more than the intellect, intellectual un, yeah. unpacking of character. Sure. The other in this, um, in this two by two, I think at times refers to character and at times can refer to scene partner too. Yeah. So if you think about awareness of other people's emotions, being on stage with someone else, working a scene with someone else yeah. and responding to what they're doing in, uh, both in character, right. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of like being, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for being Spontane- responsive and, responsive, and, spontaneous, and, I have a couple examples from acting one Go for where, uh, and this happens throughout a lot of actor training I've done as both a student as, and a teacher is, is um, you can be a very dutiful actor and do your work with your character and sometimes make really specific strong choices about how the character behaves moment to moment. But if it is not tied to, this is all Meisner, right? This is a huge part of actor training. If it is not actually responsive to the other person or people on stage, then it lacks life and it lacks truthfulness. So if we're talking about other as the other people on stage and not, and not just your character, um, it is incredibly valued to practice that idea of, of listening, which is hard. I mean, I try and give as close to hundred percent of my energy to Kateri when she's talking. Um, and I love it. <laughs> um, and yet I don't think it's po- And I don't mean this as an, as a pessimistic or cynical thing. I, I think it's impossible to get everything. Uh, on the first go around. And that's why the repetition and returning to these scenes and these characters over and over again and attacking them from with multiple tools from multiple perspectives is so valuable. Yeah. So the the very last quadrant is sort of the most complex. Yeah, um, complexity. Which is um, not just recognizing and being able to label someone else's emotions um, sort of accurately or consistently with what they say, um, but empathizing with them, right? So really... Um, being able to connect um, a, a kind of experience that you've had before, potentially with what they're going through, really being able to sort of understand. Um, although, I, you know, I think there is, um, again, if you think about this sort of, the, the second myth, right, which is that acting itself makes you emotionally unstable, that the the presumed mechanism of that myth is that when you act a lot, you become unable to dissociate yourself, right? There's an over-identification with yeah. your character um, and over-empathizing with your character. And so, I, and within the field of, of empathy, um, there is something referred to as empathic distress, mm. right? So that it's not just that you are deeply understanding and able to kind of um, accurately perspective take on someone else's emotions, but that you take them on completely, right? Mm-hmm. So... Imagine if Anne came into my office and was telling me telling me about something like semi-traumatic that happened to her over the weekend. Maybe she witnessed a car accident where there was a fatality. And so like she is, it's really, you know, and imagine if I just start bawling and I'm just out of control and suddenly Anne feels like she has to comfort me because she was telling me the story somehow where it's like, that's too, that is not an adaptive level of empathy. Sometimes you can't help it. Not all of our responses are adaptive in every single moment. But if your response to every single story that was worthy of empathy yeah. was to take it on 
in the same, as though it had happened to you a hundred percent. Yeah. That's not the goal of healthy empathy, right? No. Yeah. And this is why circling back to the second part where you are able to self-regulate your own emotions, your own lived experience, um, being able to practice it just as yourself, you can begin to assess how far you can go, how much you can empathize with character. You know, I think the other thing, if you think about the the this danger of over-identifying with character or over-empathizing, getting into this empathic sort of distress zone, um, is that most, this isn't like a hard and fast rule, is that most actors don't use the first person when they're talking about their character all the time, right? Like you, on, if you're in a scene, right? And the director calls out like, what do you want? Like you use first person to talk about the character, right? Like if you're in it, when you are doing a table read and, and discussing things, some people might use first person. Some people might use third to talk about their characters, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you think about like, you know, if I run into Anne at the grocery store while she's playing a character, she probably talks about the character and thinks and feels about the character as you would like a close friend, right? Like the character yeah. is someone you get to know yeah. really well. There's so, there's someone you understand and smiling really yeah. broadly. Like, yeah. yeah, like I have all these yeah. friends that I've had, yeah. right? But it's not like all these people that have become indistinguishable from you. No, they're not no. totally inside of me. I mean, we've talked a lot and thought a lot about how you define this relationship. And to me, they're a trusted friend yeah. who kind of guide you over, through your time in rehearsal and on stage. I spoke to a drama therapist named Ashley Kleinman-Martinez, and I asked her about what it means to de-roll, um, which is a drama therapy um, concept and she walked me through this because I'm because there was an American Theater Magazine um, article from the March 2017 issue that was like, "Hey, actors get a ton of training of about how to get into character, but how do we cool down? How do we come mm-hmm. out of character?" And so she talked about de-rolling, and I, I just after many so many conversations with her and other actors, um, I realized how important it is to ritualize uh, the the getting into and then the getting out of. And that she's where I got the quote, the mental health quote, which is this fluidity, um, moving fluidly and comfortably sort of in and out of various roles. Um, and she talked about um, the similarities and the differences and what you, what you leave in the rehearsal room and you take with you when you're done playing the role. And I really love that idea that, that as yeah. you assess um, how you're similar, which is easy, like that doesn't really require work to work on the similarities, how you are different from this character. This character has a much more cynical outlook on life. This character is a psychopath and I'm not, right? Yeah. That you leave those aspects on stage or in the rehearsal room and you say goodbye, like I'll see you tomorrow. And that you, you which, which helps you return to sure. self. So uh, my friend Coleman, who acts with me in Colorado Shakespeare Festival, a couple years ago, he had said, um, well, I stopped, I took a break from acting because I uh, s- started to play a lot of assholes and I became an asshole. And I thought, no, Coleman, that's not how it works. And this is where this myth of like acting cre- can create lack of stability is, I wouldn't say it's true, but there's one or two tiny aspects. Um, there's like a tiny kernel of truthfulness. And, and he played Bill in Lobby Hero. Um, and if anyone knows that play, Bill is not the nicest human being in the world. And I said, you know, how did how did this negatively affect you? And it was quite complicated. It wasn't just that the role was an asshole, right? It was that he, um, that maybe Coleman wasn't like feeling his best self in his 
ego, like his sense of self yeah. was drained, was not at its strongest, was not the Coleman that I know and love today. The director was fabulous, which created a, a really intense sense of reality in the rehearsal room. And perhaps most important is they would stay in character after rehearsal or after performance and continue to kind of role play in character. And so then he's, it, this led to this like blowout fight with the woman playing Dawn, which happens in the play, but wow. would otherwise not have happened to Coleman and this woman. And so I said, so what now, um, the more stable Coleman now, what would you say to, um, to this, this younger version of yourself? I'd say like, <laughs> like talk to a therapist, but perhaps more, even more important, um, ritualize the beginning, the ritualize the going into and the going out of character yeah. and really have strong, like heart to heart relationships both with the actors and with people outside of this situation. Similarly, this this American Theatre magazine uh, article talked about all this various various ways of how actors can cool down. I think you first have to assess how you have to cool down. For some people, you know, playing a role feels like an emotional ride. For someone like Ellen Lauren, who's in City Company, where they don't Emotion is not a huge part of their training. They're talking mm. about the physical, like the physical lived sure. experience in that way. For them, it might be stretching and doing yeah. some yoga, but they're not, their language does not include the like, oh, that was such a violent thing I have to, or, or such an angry thing I have to pull out of the anger. That's just not how they talk about it. Yeah. But I think this idea of washing and, and the more, this is why I'm so excited about the character having such an awake physical life, because I think physical is something that you are in control of. The, if you can wash away the physicality, so if your character slumps, yeah. right, forward, finding a way to maybe do the opposite, the antidote to it. Yeah. Or I was thinking like when I played Mercutio, Mercutio would not stop moving. So as soon as intermission came, I was done. I would just sit. <laughs> you were dead. I would just sit. Still, and yeah. that kind of counteracted the character. So I just, I love this idea of like the catharsis of the ritual of physically washing away. And sometimes it's stretching, sometimes mm -hmm. it's breathing, sometimes it's yoga. Um, has a lot of value to, yeah. to de-roll. And I would just add, I don't know, I don't know much about the role of de-rolling in drama therapy, but I would add that just based on what I know about how people's brains work, you want to try to, if you have a candidate ritual, you want to probably try it out in a setting where you know you'll have pretty high levels of success detaching from the character. So you want to build up a sense of like, this works, this does yes. transition me out of it. Yeah. Uh, as you're playing around with that sort of for the, the first time, because yeah. after a while, almost anything can become self-sustaining, you know, if it, yeah. if, it, if it works to do it. I talked to an actress once who was playing a very intense role and she was so good at it. Um, she played it in multiple places around the community. Yeah. And the first time she played it, she had like an hour plus drive. Oh, and then her commute got like shorter, <laughs> shorter. I so need the hour. She, yeah, she was like the first time she did it at the closer theater. She was like, "What's my new thing? Like, I don't have yeah. my thing anymore because I, I don't have the drive, yeah. you know, down from." But did you know she found a thing? She did, but I can't remember. What it yeah, was. but I think I think what what I'm the suggestion I want to make is like as long as you have a thing yeah. that you practice and then becomes yeah. tried and true, it works. Um, two more quick ideas around this. Going back to that play, grounded again, the Air Force pilot, she, her 
love, very loving husband, um, has a job at one of the casinos in Vegas. And he says, I do this, I have to do this ritual when I'm done with my shift to show them I'm not taking any like cards or money or chips home. Oh, right? interesting. So he does this thing to the camera, the security camera that like he jiggles his arms and is like, see, I don't, he shakes his arms. He goes, you need that. He says to her, oh. and she's like, what are you talking about? And, and he goes, you need a, some kind of physical gesture to clear your head out of war zone an hour away. She's an hour commute home. And she tries it through the whole play to figure out this kind of class. And it's like his where she claps and she does a kind of shake. And I mean, I've never seen it fully produced. And so I don't know exactly. It's different. It's based on whatever actor. Sure. But so that that to me is symbolic of what we as as role players, as actors can do is like the ritual of jumping in and jumping out. Similarly, and I have just a couple examples is is I've been thinking a lot about this character because I want to play her. And that fact about her informs Anne. So so I think the beauty of attaching to character is you are in control of how much that character impacts you. And if you want them to impact you in a positive, useful way, even if they're like psychopaths, and I have an example of that, let them. So that idea of her ritualizing a transition from one world to the other, in my head, I thought, oh, I could be better about that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. Thank you, random, somewhat fictional character for totally. teaching me that. Yeah. And I mean, that's the that's one of the emotional benefits of successfully empathizing with another person is you do learn about yourself, right? You learn. Yes. It's about, so wonderful. You learn both about common humanity, right? You learn like, wow, there's some levels in which we're all the same. There's this character who is so different from me. There's this character who is a psychopath and I'm not a psychopath, but uh. yet I understand some of their motivations because I'm able to embody them. Like that's a really important learning piece. Yeah. As well as understanding some differences and being like, wow, when I'm being this character, this thing sets me on edge. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many, you know, like imagine playing a character who is, um, has misophonia and can't stand hearing other people chewing and then suddenly being aware of your own life. Oh, okay. Even though I don't have that. Um, I am now aware and I'm a more considerate person of other yeah. people's experiences because I've spent some time hanging out with this yeah. character. I think there's there I think the bi-directional benefit so of cool. empathizing with other people is totally there. It's super cool and it can it can feed positively your own sense of self also, not just empathy of other people. So mm. um, a student of mine just finished playing a psychopath in a play and he said, I've never felt, as me, I've never felt so uncertain starting this particular quarter at DU. And he's playing this character who has a lot of negative qualities, like violent, vicious person. But he admired this character, as he called it, courageous certainty. Hmm. So the character, even though there's a there's hundred different things that are problematic about this character as a human being fed him and yeah. actually in a positive way got him into a better ego or sense of self, self-esteem, self-identity. Yeah. Um, similarly, in another example of a friend who was working on a play and that he was maybe feeling, the, the human being was feeling anxious or sad um, or, uh, or was kind of low about things. And the character chose joy. Like the character had had a d difficult life, but was choosing optimism. Yeah. And how he played him, like the way that he thought and the way that he stood and the smile on his face actually positively gave joy sure. to the actor. And I just think that's freaking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Are we done? I think we're done. I don't know. Are the myths busted? 
I don't see them anymore. <laughs> I th- I, they're gone. <gasps> Who are you going to call? Anna Kateri. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you. I want to thank all the actors who shared their stories with me for this episode, and especially Coleman, who gave me permission to tell the story about his younger self. Thank you. Keep listening, because up next is our interview with Dr. Ashley Hamilton. So Katiri and I are so very excited to welcome my DU colleague, Ashley Hamilton, to the podcast. Ashley Hamilton is an assistant professor of theater at the University of Denver and the executive director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative, also called DU Pi. Ashley's work ranges from teaching full-time, creating theater and performance in medium and maximum security prisons, and directing and devising at DU and professionally in Colorado and New York. She also is the executive producer and co-host of Within, a podcast that shifts the conversation about who is in prison. Ashley's creative work and research focuses on the complexities of teaching and creating in prisons and how this practice can be used as a resource for authentic dialogue, cultural shift, transformation, and lasting rehabilitation. Ashley is a PhD and MA in applied educational theater from New York University, and a BFA in performance from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Thank you, Ashley, for being here. Thank you for having me. Hey, so, so my, fun. yeah, my first, I'm so excited. I have a ton of questions. Uh, my first question is if you could tell us just a little bit about the training, maybe in particular with drama therapy that you got at, at NYU. So I moved to New York to be an actress, um, a traditional theater actress, and kind of slowly made my way into the world of what we call applied theater, or also goes by theater for social change, theater for communities, um, and ended up getting my master's and then my PhD at NYU in, in that area, and became really interested. You know, it's actually... It's funny because I think back to when I moved to to New York to be an actress, my backup plan was I told myself I had until the age 28 to make it, quote, <laughs> like I don't, whatever I thought that meant. Um, reasonable, very reasonable. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, in theater. And then at 28, I was going to become a therapist. That was my oh. plan. Yeah. So it's interesting because I kind of ended up doing that, but it just looks really different. Um, and I should be really clear, I am not currently a registered drama therapist. I'm on my way. Um, but I trained uh, and took a ton of classes in the drama therapy department at NYU. For my master's, I specifically um, studied interview-based theater. So my master's thesis and my, my work was really centered around that, which has a really interesting therapeutic component as well. Um, so I, during my master's, uh, one of my professors and my eventual mentor and now friend, Joe Salvatore, he trained me. And I also got to study with Anna DeVere Smith, who a lot of folks in the theater world know, who is also sort of seen as, I would argue, kind of the founder of interview-based theater or one of the founders. And then I also got to study with the um, Tectonic Theater Company, a la Laramie Project, so I think that like looking back at that, I was in my mid-20s and had already taken a pretty deep dive into the relationship of therapy and healing 
um, and exploration as it relates to theater, even in my master's. And then in my PhD, I went even deeper um, with my work in the drama therapy department. And also um, my, I declared, you know, my work was going to be in, in prison and that I was going to, that was going to be my area of study. It's interesting looking back because I remember during the first semester of my PhD coursework, I was directing or I was devising a play in a women's maximum security prison. And the play content that was coming from the women from our experience of devising was so extreme in terms of the, the themes that it was so intense. We were talking about sort of the most intense things, um, which was interesting because I hadn't necessarily guided it that way. I had kind of given them open playing space, which Katuria, I'd be really curious to hear what you have to say about this, because a lot of times I find when I'm working in a prison and I just leave an open space that it gets filled with a therapeutic need. And that's exactly what happened. And so that was in my first semester of my PhD. And I remember at the end of that semester, during that experience, I said to my mentors, I have to go take drama therapy classes. Like I can't keep doing this and do it ethically well. Because I was like, I'm in a whole nother realm. Like I've left Uh just applied theater or educational theater. I'm doing something else and I don't have training. Yeah. So um, I used the rest of my credits at NYU to take classes in counseling and drama therapy and um, and happened to get to study with, again, one of the founders of drama therapy, Robert Landy. NYU was his department. And um, I got to study with him, which is just wild. Um, and that totally changed the way that I see all of my work. It's like embedded into the foundation of all of my work, whether that be in community or even just in, you know, I just directed a show at uh, DU, a traditional theater show with uh, our students who are in a BA program. And they will probably tell you that their experience with me was probably quite unique compared to other directors because I do embed that training even in traditional theater experiences. How would you summarize like how that changes your approach, like either concretely, like how does it change like the order in which you approach things or how does it change the like kinds of things that are on or off limits as part of the creative process? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that I approach the experience of theater differently from a lot of traditional theater makers in that. And I would be curious, Anne, what you have to say about this. And I know some of our colleagues would totally, they, (laughs) <laughs> they would totally disagree with me. We we do things very differently. I think, but respect each other deeply. But that I kind of view the theatrical experience of putting on a play um, as just this like highly. It's a highly vulnerable experience because we're diving into what it means to tell a story about being a human, and I think that. Um, because I view it that way and I don't just sort of see it as like st- we're storytellers blank or like period, we're storytellers period. But I think that what makes the storytelling in a play powerful is often our connection to the text, whether that be like with a lot of distance emotionally or not. Um, and so because of that, I sort of put in place different structures that allow for that to happen in ways that I think are safer. So for example, um, every single rehearsal 
that I hold, every single one, we check in and we check out. So we begin with like in the same way that a lot of, you know, in a rehearsal, you would warm up. Well, prior to warm ups, we check in. So we like center together as a community and we like let whatever just happened before go or the day go. We talk about where what we're coming into the room with and uh, we set an intention for the rehearsal. And then we have rehearsal. And then at the end, we check out and we talk about what we're leaving behind or an intention we have for the next before we meet again. So there's sort of a holding and that's, we call that like the therapeutic holding, right? Um, and I think to me that ritual just sort of acknowledges that we're doing something that can be rather intense. Katiri and I talk a lot about ritual and by ritualizing mm-hmm. the rehearsal process and the performance process by deciding when you begin to drop into character in rehearsal and when you choose to come out, that that creates a healthier relationship um, mm-hmm. with it rather than carrying that character with you 24 hours a day, uh, you know, out, outside of rehearsal. It's important to set it aside. And to me, it creates more respect for the work and it does allow the human beings telling the story to be more vulnerable um, because like you say, you're, you're holding space for that. I literally, I mean, I think of a check-in as my way of taking the temperature of the group that day. So yeah. I, I, and I prepare that the check-in may totally divert my plan for the day. So there was one day we were in Killer Joe rehearsal and I, and I'm talking about, you know, these, these incredible juniors and seniors who have thrown themselves into this, these roles and they couldn't be more professional, more like let's get to work. And there was one day, probably halfway in the process where we checked in and I could just tell by the check-in that stuff was up. They were all, they kind of had all kind of come to a funky point in the quarter, personally, professionally. A lot of them were preparing for, you know, graduation. COVID was kind of starting to have a, like have legs. We were like starting to hear about it. And, and we rehearsed for a little while, but after a while, I was just like, can we just acknowledge that like everyone's off, like everything is we- like everyone is feeling weird, you know, and that um, we could use the, you know, this space tonight. And I literally said this to them. Do you all want to use this space tonight to kind of put that stuff to the side and let's dive into our story? Like, let's get super deep into our scene work. Um, or do you want to do that for a little while and then spend the second half of rehearsing doing something that like acknowledges where you're all at? And I asked them and they told me, they wanted to do the second option. And so we spent half of the rehearsal time working and getting the work done. And then the second half, I led them through like a movement exercise just to sort of like process what was going on. Now, we only did that once in the whole seven-week rehearsal process. Uh, that wasn't like common practice. But in applied theater and drama therapy training, you talk a lot about using the check-in as your thermometer, right? Like as your way of taking the temperature of the group um, and then being prepared to shift whatever you have planned based on it. To try and tie this explicitly to an actor and the work an actor can do on his or her or their own is I feel like I really enjoy doing that by myself as an actor, mm-hmm. where I sort of do a check-in in a, and in relationship to the acting work I have to do. I'm constantly assessing like, am I cool to enter into this? How can I enter into this? Do mm-hmm. I feel safe entering into this? Do I have to take a break today? And so I, I'm sort of fascinated with, with all of this really cool information about checking in how, a, how a, an act, actor can become almost self-sufficient with it how they can ask themselves those questions um, to one, have a healthy relationship to the work and also to just to build, to do, give a really good performance. Um, Absolutely. 
my question that I'm dying to ask is, what is the value of acting for for the populations that you work with a lot for sort of mm-hmm. whether we want to call them not professional actors or non-traditional actors. Um, I'm thinking in particular, mm-hmm. you do a ton of work with people in prisons. Um, mm-hmm. Like what is the cathartic benefit, therapeutic benefit, um, just sense of self, emotional mm-hmm. intelligence benefit of them role-playing of them mm-hmm. working on character and performing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great question. I think it's important for me to acknowledge my work uh, currently and probably for the majority of my career moving forward is um, very deep in the prison system and works deeply with incarcerated folks. I work mostly now in prisons and love that. I feel it's very much my calling and where I'm supposed to be. And I would say in reflecting on all that work with all those communities, but also specifically with folks inside, what I think the gift of theater is, I think it's, it's, Sort of multi-pronged. I think, um, yes, that it uh, it creates a space and it creates a holding for folks to do a couple of things. They can either choose to use it as escape, right? So especially for folks who like what they are in prison and they want to use a period of time to forget where they are, which is one of the main things I hear from my incarcerated students is like when I'm working uh, on the show or I'm in rehearsal or in theater class or whatever. Um, I forget where I am, right? So there is like this ex- this opportunity for like a liminal space to be created where people are no longer um, a person experiencing homelessness or for that for just a little while, they can put that identity to the side and kind of dive in and play in this world, which I think is also so true for our traditional theater students, right? And, and, and traditional actors, that's what happens as well. I mean, how many times, Dan, have you been in rehearsal or been in a performance and then later on you're like, I totally forgot where I was or the time or, you know, you get so lost in in playing. Yeah, Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's such an incredible feeling. So imagine feeling that while incarcerated, right? Um, And then obviously having to go back to that reality, which is its own interesting question. Um, So escape, yeah. And I think in a healthy way, it can be healthy escape. But then also... And this is the piece I'm more interested in, um, but using it as a way to to grow and to yeah. shift and transform. So I'm really interested in how do we use a role that we're playing to um, grow our ability to empathize, Yeah, right? Um, I'm really interested in getting to try on different characters as a way to work through complicated emotions so that you don't have to work through them and possibly harm someone in reality. So like this, and this starts to tie into Robert Landy's role theory and the idea that what in a safe container where we can play the quote bad guy, right? Where we can allow that role within us, which we all have, we all have the full spectrum of roles within us. If there can be a space where we can um, dip our toes in that and be safe and not harm anyone, um, how therapeutic that can be and how that can really create, I think, a shift in someone's paradigm. Yeah. Um, and then there, I also see, I think, kind of more like overt um, benefits, which are things like people's public speaking skills being really strengthened, their ability to um, name an emotion, right? And, and um, point to an emotion that they're experiencing because there's more language around it and there's more space around it to do that. 
the ability to work through conflict in new ways because you've seen different models um, placed in front of you. So like the implicit and the explicit of what it is possible through um, yeah. through playing a role or acting in a non-traditional space. Yeah, I'm going to try and link some experiences I've had with rules I've loved with what I've observed in the talkbacks with your actors who are incarcerated. Um, mm-hmm. After the plays that you produce, you, I think, almost always or always have a talkback. And I find the yeah. talkback really extraordinary because the actors and the crew people are talking about their work. Um, And what I have felt as an actor and then listening to them is the idea of also expanding and amplifying, expanding and adding complexity to your sense of self. That if I only identify as someone who plays super feminine, I mean, this isn't me, but like super feminine characters like wives who just love their husband, you know, and then I get Mm -hmm. to play Mercutio, right? And then this person who's perhaps so much of their identity is like, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm projecting this on them, but maybe t- perhaps ties into being incarcerated. And then they have the opportunity to say, I'm an actor and I'm an actor mm-hmm. who got, and, and this is a new identifying marker for me. And also mm-hmm. I got to play, like you're saying, I got to play this type of character. I've never seen myself as mm-hmm. that, that, that identifying in a much more like, um, like opening your arms up to all these different ways one is allowed to be in the world is mm-hmm. really is exciting. And absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen, um, you know, folks like Brett who played the lead and played McMurphy in one flew of the cuckoo's nest incarcerated man in the maximum security prison. Right. So I'd been working with him for a while before I cast him in that role. And, um, he was like kind of a wall, kind of a wallflower. Like he was really, uh, present, but very quiet. Um, and sort of to himself, and then he came into the audition and I had him read based on look, because he just like looks, he's like, you know, if I was going off of headshots, I would have been like that dude, he needs to read for McMurphy, right? Um, and he read for him and I pushed him a little and I pushed him a little and I knew he needed a lot of work, but that he had that sort of like ballsy uh, confidence that McMurphy has. And by the end of the show, the way that Brett came out of his um, sort of like, prior identity in prison as quiet to himself. And then all of a sudden, even just in his body, he was more confident and more open and kind of just blown away that he pulled it off, right? That he, and that he played this person who uh, is so complicated and that, you know, I think we want to often, the character of McMurphy uh, right off is just like a jerk or, but I think he's, He's uh, super complex and rich, and we worked really hard in our production to make him re- that we wanted the audience to empathize with him really deeply. Um, and so, anyway, I'll just say yes, I think that it totally grows people's repertoire of like who you can be as self because we get so stuck in our identities that we take on, right? That we're, we're told by others or that we choose for ourselves or whatever, but that I'm an ABCD person and I do ABCD. Rather than like, actually, and this is again, role theory, you have the full spectrum of, hu- of humanity within you. All of it. You can be any of it. We have everything within us. And it's really just choosing who you, how you want to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my personal belief. And so I think that allowing folks to get to expand that and try something new is super powerful and super healthy for all of us. Um, so we're not so stuck and rigid in yeah. our identities. And like you mentioned before that you feel like 
a lot of your work is really informed by being in a space with trauma. But I wonder if you have any other thoughts or if this is broadly a like question for role theory more generally or drama therapy more generally, if there are like certain either individuals or populations for whom there's there's reason to believe this is especially important or, or effective, if there are certain types of experiences that you have in life that are more mm-hmm. likely to have you believe this is my this is my only lane, right? Like, and for whom it's even more therapeutically beneficial to to be able to break out of that lane or explore. Mm-hmm. That might be more of a research question that is not your. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that especially for folks inside, um, because of the way that prison politics work, right? Um, it's so tribal and often so highly linked to specific ideas around gender and race and ethnicity um, that are very rigid. And um, also gang politics. We do this. We don't do that. Period. Right. So then all of a sudden to be in a space um, of play. Right. I have a student who um, he told me once. He, so he was he's he's no longer incarcerated, but he was. For a really long time, like 20 years. And um, he was in a gang for a really long time. And then he left the gang and has, and then while he was in prison, really became sort of a leader and did a lot of incredible self work, work, um, and eventually got clemency and came home. But he used to say to me, you know, one of the reasons I love coming to your class, Ashley, is because when I was on the yard or on the unit, I had a role I had to play. Right. Like, and that was like leader. I have it all together, uh, especially in, you know, a space like a men's prison where sort of hyper testosterone alpha maleness is what is going to get you power. Um, and he said, I loved coming to your class because I could totally like mm. be silly. And it was a space where it was okay to be silly. There was boundaries of like, here yeah. we do, we play zip steps up and we like make like this <laughs> and we like, you know, or whatever. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're less of a man. It doesn't mean you're, you know, and all these kind of quote rules that um, play out yeah. in prison. Um, and it's interesting. One thing I wanted to add to that is one of my favorite reasons that I love devising in prison specifically is because it, it allows for a container for folks to step into to get to decide who they want to be. And what I find so interesting when I um, create a devising opportunity inside, whether that's like write a monologue, write a scene, create a character, we're going to create a play. So much of the time, if I've done my work well and created a strong community, so much of the time, these like super quote alpha male men, right? Like we're going to like generalize on the sort of gender binary here, step into these super complicated, like they play women, they play effeminate men. They play all because they have a space to. Mm, yeah. And it's so interesting. Like, I'm like, it really just speaks to, I think, the importance of having an opportunity to, like, be able to be, quote, you know, I don't even want to say this because it, like, hurts a little, but, like, soft, right? Yeah. Because like, as if we assume, like, just women are soft or whatever. But I particularly think it's important in prison. But I think that this work has its place everywhere because we live in a world that's really um, dependent on identity and really dependent on people playing their part. That's how we understand humans. Um, I think that's more extreme though, in a space like prison. 
That gets me thinking about uh, just a couple major ideas of acting that I love, which is in Uta Hagen, there's a whole chapter on identity and it's all about just being honest with yourself about your cliche sense of identity, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. always strong-willed and I'm always confident and mm-hmm. I'm always friendly and I'm always patient when it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> like that's the mm-hmm. public, that's the public version of Anne, but uh, you know, get her alone when her kids aren't behaving and she's not patient, you know? Yeah. And then similarly, I'm teaching Make her, her stay home for eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and the other related idea, which I find fascinating is uh, voice is such a strong communication tool. The, the literal voice and Kristen Linklater's voice technique mm. is all about freeing the natural voice is the title mm. of the book because we have familiar voices, which are like our cliched identities. And mine, I'm using it right now, is like this strong, like pretty loud, confident sound. But that is not the only thing my voice is capable of. Like the vocal mm. apparatus that we have in our bodies is like huge and so dynamic and so expressive. And I can be vulnerable if I use this resonator and I can be soft if I do this and I can have so much more power if I breathe. And it's like, I'm just sort of tying this idea um, that you're talking about into like really specific acting tools that like, if, if you learn the tools that you are actually then capable of expressing all these, this diversity of character, right. Of humanity. I think that's tied to the meta theme of what I stand for as an artist and as a teacher and as the director of this program, which is that can we create space for people to be completely free and to be, to sort of break through a lot of the ideas we have around what's shameful or what's embarrassing so that um, more possibility can be present. You know, you talked a lot about um, within when, when you're doing work on the inside about one of the things that um, the people, the actors that you're working with is are saying that the, is beneficial is the escape. And so I'm curious about what happens when the actor character relationship isn't one of relative escape, but one of, of relative mm-hmm. um, of, of trauma of, of someone who has mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. Um, exposure to trauma, who is stepping into a traumatized role. So perhaps mm-hmm. more your, your, uh, relatively traditional DU students in Killer Joe, you know, kind of in that direction of stepping into something that's a little bit more heavy, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more um, dark. Mm-hmm. How does that change the 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 stepping in and stepping out the the, mm-hmm. the you know process as, as people are getting into character and out of character? Absolutely, um, I think that oftentimes specifically when we're directing a show inside there's a lot of conversation that has to happen prior to um a even choosing a play right so one flew over the cuckoo's nest is if you know it um there's a lot of really interesting parallels between it and prison i think that i was i had some moments of pretty extreme fear after I chose the play about like, what have I done? Like, was this the right call? Because I knew I was going to be asking people to um, dive in some really complex themes of mental illness and um, being uh, kept against your will and being, I mean, basically incarcerated. That's, I mean, the mental institution, a lot of the folks there were right kept there against their will and needed, wanted to escape. And I mean, it's, so there were all these themes and I really waffled 
with the power of choosing to do that play in prison because of the meta themes? And would I be re-traumatizing and bringing up things for my incarcerated students Mm. um, in a way that could be really doing a disservice to them? And what I did, y'all, was I just went to them and I was like, you guys, I'm really nervous. Like, I was just really transparent. I was like, I believe in this play. I believe it's the right choice, but I really want to know, like, here, you all read it. And then let's have a conversation. And we did. And um, then after that, when, once they kind of gave me the green light in our conversation and, and wanted to dive in, um, we built in times in the rehearsal process to really allow for space to get into some of that stuff. We, um, my uh, co-creator, Julie, who works for DU Pi and is fabulous, she held a whole uh, rehearsal just on exploring mental health and mental illness and our own personal relationship to mental health and mental illness since it's one of the major themes in the play. At the same time, I get a little worried about um, being patronizing to people and not assuming they can't handle things too, right? Like yeah. a lot of times folks I work with have been through way more hardship and trauma than I have and actually do have the ability to handle it. Like they have the resources and stuff, you know, and I don't want to be kind of like, are you okay? Like do we, right. you know, all the time right. either. So it's like a funny line of like reading the room, having the conversation, um, wanting to check in, but also wanting to honor the process of putting on a play and going through rehearsal and telling a story traditionally. Um, mm-hmm. But in moving that into sort of de-roll and coming out to answer yeah. your question, um, I think that's why we have the checkout for me, right? And so when we think about taking off the role and having a ritual around that, um, I know sometimes even in like a traditional therapeutic setting, if you've ever worked with a therapist who has done like the, the suitcase technique, where you literally have a, a suitcase that you put the the question or the issue that you're talking about, you put it in there and you put the suitcase away until next week. Like some mm. therapists do that sort of technique. I think there are these different ways that we can build in ritual, getting back to the idea of how important it is, um, to keep us feeling like we can manage in the real world after rehearsal. One other uh, example of... Uh, role play that I found fascinating is is in preparation for this episode. I spoke to Ashley Kleinman Martinez, who also did the NYU yes, program, yeah, yeah. and yeah. she talked about instances, or was this you, Katiri? Instances of people in the room helping you um, process an experience by being different emotions. Yeah. being the roles or being the different emotions yeah. or sometimes like if you don't want to play you you can step out and have someone else yeah. Yeah. If, like if you are having a hard time on this hypothetical expressing anger this person can come stand by you yeah. and be anger this one can be forgiveness yeah. this and i found that fascinating that human beings are literally guiding yeah. you through yeah. um the experience that you're that you're working through yeah that's called process drama process and drama. um it's absolutely incredible i've had i had it highly therapeutic and intense experience with process drama when I was in graduate school where um, I was taking the class, like learning how to, to do this form, right. To um, facilitate this form. And they, they would use us as the examples. Like we were having therapy done on us to learn. I mean, that was like, the, <laughs> that was the way it happened. Yeah. Um, yeah I know. Which I'm sure Kateri has a lot of maybe thoughts on, um, but 
I think it's at the same time wonderful and horrifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's tender, that's for sure. But I um, I remember the, the week I got to go was Dream Week. And so I told them about a dream I had had recently. And then we cast everyone in the room or multiple people in the room as different characters in my dream. And then I got to guide and lead it. And then I also played myself and I played someone else in the dream. And we did it like three or four times. And it's still so resonant with me. Like that experience was so intense. I have another question, Ashley. So um, how then, you know, after you've built this wonderful space and you've built this ritual, these rituals of checking in and out with people and you've created this therapeutic space, you know, if it's an ongoing, if people have signed up for ongoing indefinite drama therapy, that's one thing. But if they're doing a production-based program, how do you then deal with the production being over and having like, like, you know, you talked about your, your cast and crew giving you that suitcase, but like, how do you close the suitcase for the final time, especially if it's something that people Mm -hmm. have found vulnerable and, and valuable Mm -hmm. and therapeutic? Absolutely. That's a, it's a really complicated, hard thing. And probably one of the hardest things that I have to work through um, with our community, just because we end up literally creating families, right? Like just like in so many shows. I mean, Anne, you know, that feeling in Kateri of that beautiful feeling of like, you have this ensemble and then you have that, the sort of post-show blues, right? Um, So the way that we deal with that, and I think it's important I say this, is that we work really um, heavily with the School of Social Work at DU. So we have um, a director of research who is from uh, the the School of Social Work, Dr. Sleva, and also a social work intern who works with us. Um, So we have sort of these, again, folks to support us in areas where we're not necessarily trained. Um, And what we've kind of created over time is like a step down process for the closing of the show, Mm -hmm. where we start to have sessions about closing. Like we wow. built in multiple sessions. I think for Christmas Carol, we met two or three times to close out, like slowly in pieces. Um, and each time we did a different ritual uh, to sort of say goodbye to the experience because it was so intense. Luckily, we are able to often continue working with the same students, but it just changes yeah. form. Yeah. So like the students stick with the program, but we're now doing something totally different, right? Um, so obviously you still need to say goodbye and it's not the exact same group of people in the exact same project. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, I just think there's like a really important teachable moment there that like life comes in waves. Yeah. Right. And we have ups and you can't stay up here all the time because it does, that doesn't, that wouldn't allow those moments to be special. Right. So you have to like ride the wave. I think it's just more complicated in a space like prison where you return to like kind of like a totally different reality uh, than what you were in. So it's, it just feels really like a lot more intense. Um, And so my level of responsibility to our students in those moments feels really high. And I also really encourage them around the fact that like, we're not going anywhere, right? Like just because our play is ending, like in three weeks, your next, your dance workshop starts or like your creative writing workshop starts. Like you don't need to leave. Right. This community isn't going away. It's here for you if you want it. Yeah. Um, I just really appreciate you all letting me share about my experiences and my thoughts. Of yeah. Course. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
If you are enjoying us again, please uh, feel free to leave an iTunes rating uh, that it scales with your uh, emotional response to our <laughs> to our podcast. So we want to thank DU for helping to fund our podcast. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our terrific sound engineer and web designer, Jennifer Forsyth for her administrative prowess, Cami Chaikin for her energy and commitment to increasing our social media presence. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and Nate Cushing for his awesome editing. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.